I'll take your copy of uh, God's Word one more time. Open it again. I'm going to make an adjustment. Open it again to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, this morning in verses 14 through 22, as we round out the letters to the churches in Revelation today, the seventh of those letters to the church at Laodicea. Now, perhaps the Lord, uh, in uh, knowing that I had, uh, or that he had uh, led me to preach on this text on this day, has given me opportunity to become well acquainted with the central image to be used uh, in this passage. Over the last couple of weeks, two of our kids and our dog were all beset with stomach bugs at different times, and things were coming up all over the place, and it was not pretty. And uh, Nikki and I have had uh, a lot of uh, uh, personal and firsthand experience in the last two weeks with uh, things that come up, things that are vomited up out of one's stomach, and that image, gross as it may be, Let it linger in your mind here in just a moment as we look at Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea. Here in this seventh of the letters, we've we've read, uh, been through six of them so far already. The church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, church at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and now Laodicea. Some of the Words that Jesus has spoken to his church have been rather positive, encouraging. Uh, The church at uh, Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia have nothing negative said about them, only encouragement uh, from Jesus to endure and to overcome in the midst of persecution and difficulty that they are facing. Jesus speaks some hard words to some churches, even in the midst of encouragement at the same time. But not yet has Jesus said uh, or spoken to any church uh, to whom there was nothing good to say at all. Except now. In this way, Jesus saves maybe the worst for last. I don't know. But we'll look at the condition of the church in Laodicea here in a moment. In this final of these uh, last of these seven letters, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea, calling them to repent of their lukewarmness by depending on him and thereby renewing their faithful witness to his name in their city. The main idea to the church in Laodicea and to the church today from Jesus' words to that church 2,000 years ago, is this. Beware the deceptive power of self-sufficiency. Beware the deceptive power of self-sufficiency, of thinking that you can handle it all for yourself. As we see this warning coming from Jesus to his church this morning, we must come to depend entirely upon Jesus. Recognize that this is the, this is the call to repentance, to depend entirely upon Jesus in order to be an effective witness for him in the world. It's what he called his church in Laodicea to do, and it's what he calls Christians everywhere to do as well. Would you, as you're comfortably able, stand as we honor God by reading his word, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Keep in mind... That very visceral image that we began with. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some of your translations may say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Beware the deceptive power of self-sufficiency. As Jesus now turns to the seventh of the church, I'm going to get this mic in the right place in a second, I promise. I'm a little bit of a jiggler when I talk, and so, is that going to work, man? All right, rock and roll. There we go. We'll see. So as Jesus speaks to this last of the seven churches, Laodicea, we see him again, as he always does, identifying himself using some of the images that were, that were originally um, uh, attested to him or used to describe him in Revelation chapter 1, and he speaks to a church in a particular context. So what do we see in verse 14 about Jesus and the Laodiceans? What do we know about Laodicea? Well, we know that this city, Laodicea, was about 30 to 35 miles southeast of Philadelphia, uh, it was about 15 miles northeast from Colossae. That probably sounds familiar to you. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, traveling through uh, on his uh, missionary uh, journeys, started a church in Colossae. It's where um, his friend uh, Philemon was and a man named Onesimus, probably associated with that church there in Colossae, Laodicea, kind of between Philadelphia and Colossae. Now, Laodicea itself as a city was a really wealthy city. It was a center for banking in that day. In fact, if you wanted to cash a check, you went to Laodicea to do it because they had the goods to cash it. They were famous for their wool trade. In fact, they had a, a, a very popular, almost infamous black wool that came out of Laodicea. It's, it's what they produced. They were known for it. They also uh, were known for their medical advances. There was a substance that uh, certain doctors in Laodicea had put together called Phrygian powder that was used to uh, anoint the eyes of people that had various eye diseases. Laodicea was so wealthy a city that after a great earthquake nearly leveled the entire city in the year A.D. 60, Laodicea rebuilt itself of its own funds without seeking any financial relief at all from the Roman Empire, almost unheard of in its day. With all of the wonderful things that were going on in Laodicea, they had one sort of fatal flaw. Laodicea, as a city, had no reliable source of drinkable water. Interestingly enough. Now, if you were to uh, look today at uh, the, the, where Laodicea is, uh, if you were to do a little Google image search, one of the first things that would pop up are these amazing looking like soaking pools or soaking ponds that are covered in like white stalactites, white mineral deposits. And that is because the water in Laodicea is chock full of calcium carbonate, baking soda which makes these really pretty you know, water deposits uh, or mineral deposits when the water evaporates, but makes it absolutely nauseating to drink. So Laodicea had to pipe their water in. 
To the south, as we noticed, uh, noted before, the city of Colossae was, and Colossae had a freshwater spring there, and so the Roman system of, of aqueducts was very helpful for allowing water, fresh water from Colossae to be piped into Laodicea. Also, just a little ways north of uh, Laodicea was another town called the Hierapolis, and there in Hierapolis were natural hot springs, and so water would be pumped in from there as well. By the time the water got to Laodicea, unfortunately, it was pretty tepid. Not uh, Water that's traveled a long, long way is not usually very fun to drink. And so that was kind of the, the, the descriptor of the, of the city in Laodicea. Jesus, as he speaks to this church, identifies himself in a couple of different ways. He identifies himself, first of all, as the amen, the faithful and true witness It may not seem so in your English translations, but this is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 65, verses 15 and 16, where God, speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah, refers to himself as the God of truth. And that word truth in Hebrew is the Hebrew word amen, which we get our English word amen from, and the Greek word amen from. Just as in chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation, Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who points truly and perfectly to the Father. That word amen means true. He is faithful and true, he says of himself. All of this is to indicate that Jesus is the one true and trustworthy God. There is nothing he says about God. There's nothing he reveals about the Father that is untrue or deceptive or misunderstood in any way. He reveals the Lord. He reveals God clearly. As God in the flesh, he is a perfect revelation of the Father to us. He's the amen, the faithful and the true witness. And you may have noticed that Jesus also says of himself that he is the beginning of God's creation. That's a strange statement. Now, this is not to indicate that Jesus is a created being. We understand, as, uh, as Christians have for 2,000 years, that the Son of God is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit, that there never was a time when the Son was not. So what does it mean that Jesus says he is the beginning of God's creation? Well, that word beginning comes from the Greek word RK, which may not make a whole lot of sense or matter too much to you, but understand that the word RK in Greek can also be understood to mean ruler, or as Paul uses it in Colossians 1 verse 18, as the firstborn over the new creation. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, never to die again in a glorified body, makes him the first fruits of God's recreative action. He is the beginning of God's new creation, not because he was created from, uh, not that there was a time when he did not exist and God created him and so now he does exist, but that Christ in his resurrection is the beginning of something new that God is doing in the world. What do we learn from Jesus, the amen, the faithful, the true witness who speaks to the church at Laodicea? Well, I think this. There's a call to us this morning to listen to Jesus who never speaks falsely. When Jesus speaks, listen. Why? Because he's never going to say anything that's untrue. He's never going to say anything that's false. He's never going to say anything that's wrong. He's never going to lead you astray. He'll never say anything that will condemn you, only those things that will lead you to a true knowledge of the Father and salvation through faith in himself. Now, Jesus is about to give a really hard word to the Laodiceans, a word that they must listen to if they are truly his people. And that they must obey if they are to overcome with him as he calls them to do. But true words that cut deep are hard to hear sometimes, aren't they? 
When a boss criticizes you, rightly so, for uh, maybe work that you've done that is less than satisfactory, and you know it's less than satisfactory, those are not easy words to hear. When your wife confronts you over a harsh word said to your children in poor timing and, and without a spirit of, of gentleness, when she points that out to you and you know that you've done it, that's a hard word to hear. Sometimes the truth hurts, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to it. Sometimes the truth hurts, but that doesn't mean we should deafen our ears to it. So when Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness, says a hard word to the church, we shouldn't, shouldn't stick our fingers in our ears and say, nah, 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 nah. not listening. We ought to unstop our ears and focus our hearts, focus our minds on what he is saying because Jesus is the faithful and true witness, the amen, the God of very God in flesh who died for sins and was raised again, never to die again, the firstborn, the firstfruits of God's new creation. Let's listen when he speaks. What does Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? Well, he says, beware. Beware self-sufficiency or the deceptive power of self-sufficiency. As Jesus has done with every single church that he's spoken to, he tells the church at Laodicea what he knows about them. You see it there in verse 15. He says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know all the things you do. Most specifically, he knows that their deeds, that their works reveal that they are useless and nauseating to him. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out. I will vomit you out of my mouth. What is behind this uh, confrontation from Jesus to the church? You are neither hot nor cold. What does he mean by this? Well, this is not an indication of their spiritual temperature, which is how we're, we're maybe most often in our Western context uh, uh, prone to reading this, like cold is bad, hot is good. When a relationship is hot, things are going well. When a relationship is cold, things are about to end altogether. If you are hot for someone, you are on their side. If you are cold toward someone, you are opposed to them. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, you're neither for me nor are you against me. That's not what he's indicating. The hotness, the coldness is not an indication of their spiritual temperature, but it's an indication of their spiritual effectiveness. Consider the hot waters of the hot springs in Hierapolis, just north of Laodicea, that people would go to for therapy, for healing, when your body aches after a long workout or a a hard trek or a hard hike. You want to go sit in the hot tub and relax your muscles. But the church in Laodicea is not hot like that. Their witness to Jesus is not therapeutic to the world. It is not bringing healing to those that are hurting. Jesus says, neither are you cold, which means like the freshwater springs of Colossae, this cold water bubbling up out of the ground, fresh and ready to drink, quenching the the deepest and harshest thirst of, of travelers who have been a long time without anything to drink. That nice cold water, just the feel of that on a hot summer day when you've been digging trenches for irrigation in your backyard in the middle of July. Been there, done that. That cold water is like life in that scenario, but the church at Laodicea isn't cold either. They're not refreshing. They're not thirst quenching. They're not life-giving. They're lukewarm. They're tepid. They're nauseating. They're good for nothing. 
in the sense we see that Laodicea's actual water problem, that they had no drinkable water in their own city. They had to pipe it in from other places, and by the time it got there, it really wasn't worth drinking too much anyway. Their actual water problem serves as an illustration of a deeper spiritual problem among Jesus' church there. They're neither therapeutic to those that need the healing hope of the gospel, nor are they refreshing and thirst-quenching to those who are, who are dying for a drink of living water from Jesus alone who can satisfy. They're indifferent. They're apathetic. They could really care less about their witness to Jesus. Holocaust survivor and author Elie Wiesel said, The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Apathy. Indifference is bad, we can agree, I think. It's not good to be lukewarm. It's not good to be apathetic about your witness to Christ in the world. But where does this apathy come from? Where does indifference about a particular matter, where does it originate in us from? Where did it originate from in the life of the Laodiceans? What brings a person to a place where they just don't seem to care about anything or maybe a really important thing like the witness to Jesus in the world? I think indifference comes when two different things, when two things are the case, or maybe three things are the case. When one... You have more than you need. This was certainly the case of the church in Laodicea, of the Laodiceans. It's a wealthy city. There was nothing they needed. It's the center of banking, uh, serious uh, uh, textile commerce, the center of, of medical advancement. They had everything that they needed. Indifference comes when you have more than you need. It comes when you're facing no hardship. It does not seem that the church in Laodicea is facing much persecution in its own day, like so many of the other churches that Jesus speaks to are. And perhaps they're not facing persecution because they've compromised on some of their convictions to Christ. They've been worshiping in some of the temples to Roman gods to get along in society. But they have more than they need. They're not facing any hardship. And they seem to have become rather proud of the life that they've made for themselves. Jesus confronts them. He says, you say, I am rich. Look what I've done for myself. I need nothing. When these things are the case, indifference prospers. Apathy flourishes when you have more than you need, when you're not facing difficulty, and you're really proud of what you've done for yourself. And that's precisely what the church at Laodicea had done. Elie Wiesel says, the opposite of all these things is indifference, but it is interesting to know that Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor, is not the first person to say so. Jesus says it plainly to the church in Laodicea 2,000 years ago. He points out their problem, the, the root of their problem. He says, you say you need nothing. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But in reality, Jesus says, you have nothing that you really need. The Laodiceans boast in what their wealth has been able to acquire, uh, what they and their wealth have been able to acquire for themselves. Gold, luxurious clothing, the best medical treatment. We have arrived, the Laodiceans say. And Jesus says, this is precisely what you say about yourselves. But there's one problem, well, one giant problem. That though you think you need nothing, you have in reality nothing that you need. He says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, there is nothing that I need. Not knowing, not recognizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. <laughs> 
The church that thought they had everything is in reality wretched. Pertaining to the, 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 person of the, uh, the person who is left in their sin and given over to their sinful desires. That's what it is to be wretched. To just be doing all that your sinful heart leads you to do and not even thinking twice about it. That word wretched is the word that Paul uses for himself in Romans chapter 7 in describing his own regular pattern of falling into old patterns of sin and, and sinful habits. He says in Romans seven twenty four, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The church in Laodicea is not just wretched, they're also pitiable. Because they are walking in their sin, because they don't think twice about giving over to their sinful desires and and going after them full force, they have invoked the sorrow of Jesus for them. Jesus is sorry for the church in Laodicea. They are pitiable in their spiritual state. Like the drug addict heaped over on himself in an alleyway by his own destructive habits, so are the Laodiceans in the eyes of Jesus. So sorry for you. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, Jesus says. The Laodiceans are spiritually destitute. No, they have gold, they have money in the bank. But they have no wealth where it really matters. They have no treasure stored up in the places that really matter. Though they have much in the way of physical wealth, they lack the riches of God's grace. They are, they are poor when it comes to riches stored up in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. They've filled their life with so many material goods that they have forgotten or they have dulled their senses to their, their, their need for spiritual riches. Worse than that, they're blind. This city that was home to the, that famous Phrygian powder for the eyes, the Laodiceans are blind to their actual spiritual state. They do not see that they have come to trust in their riches and their economic capacity more than they trust in Jesus They've become blinded by their wealth. They've become blinded by their medical advancement to not see what they really, really need. And worse than that, Jesus says, you're naked. While the Laodiceans would be clothed in their beautiful raven black wool, their souls are bare in all of their sinful shame before the eyes of the all-seeing God. There is nothing that they can hide from Jesus who has eyes like flaming fire who sees through all things. You see, this is the danger of self-sufficiency, of having more than you need, of not facing any difficulty, of being rather proud of what you've made of yourself. The danger of self-sufficiency is that we become blind, we become deaf, we become deluded about the real state of our spiritual need. Physical possessions, material wealth, accumulation of accolades and praise from others has the effect of deceiving us into thinking that we are the sole source of our own provision. Look what I've done. Look at the life I've made for myself. Look at the home that I've built. Look at the nest egg that I have invested in. If I can pay all my bills for my work at my job, what is there that God can do for me? If I have clothes to wear and a warm bed that I bought for myself and I've never worried about where my next meal is coming from, then what do I need God to give to me? If I've achieved many academic degrees and won prestigious awards for leadership or teaching, what do I need God to do for me? What do I need to pray to God to enable me to do? I've already done it all. 
And this is what self-sufficiency does to a person and does to a church. When we look at what has been accomplished among us and we see our hands in it all, we are easily tempted and quickly deceived into thinking that we have done something. And before we even know it, we've been deluded into living as though we need nothing from God, and thus our witness in the world becomes all about us. And that is a tepid, stagnant, lukewarm witness that Christ will vomit out of his mouth and the watching world will see through as superficial, fake, lifeless, and as useless as Jesus sees it too. So, Jesus has a hard word for the church in Laodicea. You're lukewarm. You disgust me. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But he doesn't leave the church there. He doesn't leave them with conviction. He gives them further counsel. And what does Jesus counsel this lukewarm church at Laodicea? These Christians who have come to depend uh, more on their own ability to provide for themselves than on Christ who died for them. He says, you who think you need nothing, but have nothing you really need, get what you really need from me. This is my counsel to you, Jesus says. Buy from me, he says, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, the currency of heaven is neither silver, denarii, nor dollars and cents, but holiness without impurity, purchased by the sinless Son of God who gave his life and raised it from the dead so that we might become holy by trusting him. Jesus says, get holiness from me. Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. The most current fashion trends, dear friends, may cover your physical nakedness. But Christ, who sees all and knows all, knows the sin sin that the latest designer fashions cannot cover. What the church at Laodicea needs is not to be clothed with that luxurious raven black wool that they were so famous for, but they need to be clothed in the garments of Christ's righteousness so that their sins might be truly covered. Jesus says, buy from me holiness, buy from me righteousness, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. For all of their ophthalmic advances and their expensive eye powders, the Laodiceans were blind to their real real spiritual need. So Jesus says to this lukewarm church who is blind to themselves with their own self-sufficiency, he says, let me open your eyes so you can really see. Their arrogance brought on by their own self-sufficiency, has caused them to be blind, to, to not see what they need the most, which is not to do better, to try harder, to work more, but what they need the most is to depend on Christ. Buy from me, Jesus says, all of the things that you don't have but desperately need. So why is Jesus so stern? Why does he speak, speak such a harsh word to the church in Laodicea? Why is he so confrontational with them? Why is there no word of encouragement whatsoever? These are hard words for the Laodiceans, aren't they? Could you imagine if Jesus showed up in the middle of one of our worship gatherings and said, First Baptist Church, West Albuquerque, you make me sick. Like, could, like, let's put ourselves in the position of the Laodiceans for a moment, right? Like, it, it's a funny prospect, but if it really happened... And Jesus really showed up and said, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. That might not be a particularly encouraging day at church, would it? 
So why is Jesus, why does he speak so sternly to the Laodiceans? Why does he not mince words with them whatsoever? Why does he not pad their ego with encouragement and compliments about how, how wealthy and how pretty they are while also giving these hard words of, of, of confrontation? Why is he so direct? Well, he tells us. Jesus speaks sternly to his church because he loves his church. Did you see that? Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus speaks a hard word to his church, not because he hates his church. Jesus confronts the sinfulness of lukewarmness in the life of his church, not because he wants to condemn them forever, not because he wants to be done with them forever, not because he wants to vomit them out of his mouth, but because he loves them. And he loves them enough to point out those sins in their life that are preventing them from being effective witnesses in their city for the risen Lord. When Jesus says, I, those I love, I reprove and discipline, he is calling to mind Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, when the Lord says that to his people, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The same thing is repeated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. It is out of love for his blood-bought people that Jesus reproves and corrects them. He does not desire that they go away, nor is his reproof meant to be his condemnation. Instead, he calls his people who have lost their witness because they have come to trust in themselves to repent, to be eager about not being self-sufficient and repent of this arrogant self-deception so that they might have restored fellowship with him. He says, because I love you, I discipline you, and by the way, I'm knocking. I'm standing outside the door and I'm knocking. This verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door to me, I'll come in and dine with him. This is often used as an evangelistic appeal, a call to those who don't yet know Christ to say, Christ is knocking on the door of your heart. If you will repent of your sin and trust in him, he will come in and eat with you. And friends, that is true. But notice the context in which Jesus first said these words, not to sinners lost in their sin without any recognition of who Jesus was. He says it first to his church. People who had publicly professed that Jesus was Lord, that this was their confession in the world. Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. And to those people, Jesus says, you've locked me out. You've left me out of your gathering, but I'm knocking. Be zealous and repent. Come back in. Let me in. Presumably, these at the church in Laodicea are those who have who have professed faith in Jesus. But by their arrogant self-deception, they have secluded him from their own fellowship. In the way that they've gone about life, trusting in themselves, they've, they've made it so that there's no need for Jesus among them. And in his loving kindness, Jesus has placed himself in a position of constant call to repentance from his people. The blessing of heeding Christ's call to repent, to turn from sin and self-sufficiency and, and trust in Christ again, to repent of the, of the sins that have crept into our hearts and to allow Christ to, to be Lord again in our fellowship. The blessing of that is that Jesus gives them everything that they really, really need, which is himself. Those who are zealous and repent and open the door to me, I'll come in and dine with them. If you open the door to Jesus, he's not going to use that as an opportunity to pull you out and take you out behind the woodshed and 
whip you one side to the other. No, he says, you open the door to me, you answer the call to repentance, and we have fellowship together. So open the door. Jesus tells the Laodiceans, beware, watch out for the deceptive power of self-sufficiency, which, by the way, church at Laodicea, you've already given into. So as we look at and review these very hard, these very stern words to this church 2,000 years ago, let's apply it to our own lives. Let's listen to the words of the faithful and true Jesus. Let us not repeat the works of the Laodiceans. Let us not leave Christ knocking at the door unanswered. Let's allow his words to penetrate our hearts today. It's really easy to look at the Laodiceans in judgment and to say, yeah, you knuckleheads. You got what's coming to you. It's a lot harder to put ourselves in the place of the Laodiceans and to, and to ask ourselves, could this be me? Might I be a lukewarm witness for Jesus? Might I have come to be so comfortable in the life that I've made for myself by my own efforts and my own work and my own salary that I have no need for Jesus anywhere? And that the praise of the gospel, the, the, the hope of Christ never makes it out of my mouth? Is it possible that I'm like these? The right response to this hard word that Jesus gives to the church in Laodicea is not to immediately go out and point fingers and condemn other churches that we think are lukewarm or other Christians in our assembly that we think are lukewarm. Which, by the way, remember, anytime you point at one person, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. It's rude, so. But that's the call of this text to us. Hear what Jesus says. Listen to him. Allow the words of Christ to penetrate your heart. Consider, am I like these have I, in, in, in my own pride, in my own arrogance, have I become wretched, <laughs> pitiable? Am I spiritually poor, blind, and naked because I've come to trust more in myself than, than in Christ? Have I sought to fill the holes of my heart, those longings in my soul with whatever I can pick up from Amazon tomorrow and have by Wednesday Retail therapy is a real thing. Every time you go to Amazon to buy stuff that you think will make your life better, do you know what you're really looking for? Jesus. And the things that we buy at Amazon, Costco, Walmart, J. Crew, I don't know where you shop. The things that we go out and buy to try to soothe whatever pain it is in, in, in us, they, they will never perfectly fill that hole. That new TV from Costco isn't going to get better with age, and it's not going to make your life a whole lot better. That new electric razor that you buy from Amazon, it's coming on Wednesday, that you're so excited to use, it's not going to make you any prettier. It might be helpful for shaving, but it's not going to fix your life, right? The dinner that you, fancy dinner you plan to, Go out and, and have with your spouse this weekend because your marriage is in tatters and youth and, and one day we just we're gonna go out to Ruth's Chris and we're gonna have the best steak ever. That's gonna fix everything. Friends, no, it won't. When we go out and 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 we shop and we splurge or or we work 
our fingers to the bone. We put in 80, 90, 100 hours a week at work to bring on that paycheck with all that overtime, thinking that that will fix things. When we do that, when we pursue all this stuff in life, all we are really doing is pursuing Jesus. We just don't know it and aren't able to see ourselves clearly enough to admit it. What I really need is not an electric razor to make me look wetter, which, by the way, I'll never use it on my face, but but what I, need is, what I need is to know the love of Christ that sees me and, and receives me for who I really am as I repent of sin and come to Him. I don't need a bigger television to entertain me or, or, or better deliver the entertainment that I'm trying to use to, to consume or, or, or not to consume, but to, to soothe whatever ache it is that I have at the end of the day. What I need is time with the Lord and relationship with Him. What we need in our marriages that are broken and strained and hurting is not a fancy night out together, but what we need in our marriages is the healing balm of the gospel as we remember that just as Jesus died to make sinners whole, so also does his death cover the sins that come between us in our marriages to our spouses. And we need to say, Jesus, heal us from these things too. And a stake from Ruth's Chris isn't going to do it. Friends, don't repeat the works of the Laodiceans. Don't trust in your own self-sufficiency. Allow Christ's words to penetrate your heart. Consider, might this be me? And if so, Jesus, fix it. Fix it. Show me, give me eyes to see the things that I'm trying to, the, the holes in my life I'm trying to fill with other stuff so that I can fill it with you in relationship with you. Jesus, help me to see my sin rightly. Maybe help me to see the fact that I'm a sinner at all and that I need saving. And that only your death and my place on the cross can provide that. Whatever you do this morning, friend, don't walk away from Revelation 3, 14 to 22, thinking that's a Laodicea problem. Walk away going, this is probably a me problem. Now, Jesus does leave the church with some encouragement at the end, not for things they have done, but for rewards that come to those who conquer. He's done this in every single one of his letters. To those who conquer, I will give. And in this case, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. What's the reward for those who conquer, for those who overcome by repentance and eagerness to be in fellowship with Jesus, who overcome self-sufficiency? Here it is a reward, the reward of shared authority with Jesus. Now this is the same promise given to those who would overcome in the church of Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 26. And it's the reality for those who have received the, the first resurrection of our souls, the resurrection of salvation, and of those who have died in Christ and are awaiting his return in the eternal state with him now. The same is also promised to be with Jesus, to have dominion with Jesus over this world made new is promised to the disciples who had left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus says to his disciples, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now to have authority with Jesus, to sit on his throne with him does not mean that we'll become like gods. It doesn't mean that we become gods, that we'll have worlds that we will rule over ourselves. No, it doesn't mean that. But rather that 
that first creation mandate that was given to Adam and Eve to subdue the created world and have dominion over it from Genesis 1.28, that same creation mandate to rule over the world, to subdue the world and rule over it, will be also given to those people who are in Christ for the new creation. There is, as we saw last week, a new Jerusalem that's coming, a new heavens and a new earth. This cosmos made new when Christ returns in glory to renew it. And when he takes his people into glory with him, into that eternal state with him, he says, now, subdue it, fill it, multiply, have dominion over my new creation. That creation mandate gets renewed for us, which means, friends, in the resurrection, you'll have work to do. Praise God. We're not floating around as disembodied spirits playing on ephemeral harps for all time. There will be lands to cultivate. There will be seas to explore. There will be, if the Lord loves me, planets to travel to and to glorify God and worship upon. To those who overcome... The temptation of self-sufficiency, the deceptive power of thinking, I've done it all for me. To those who overcome that by repentance and faith in Jesus, Jesus says, you have the privilege of ruling over, having dominion over the new creation with me. And just as I raised my life from the dead, so I'll raise your lives from the dead, and we will bring glory to God in all the cosmos for eternity the new heavens and the new earth, this new creation mandate that comes with it is a return to Eden. And yet, friends, somehow even better. That's the encouragement that Jesus gives to the church to overcome by. A return to Eden, but even better. So I encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, overcome. Overcome the temptation to be deluded by self-sufficiency, by daily returning to this foundational gospel truth, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. How do we learn things? Repetition, repetition, repetition. You need Jesus. Ask our students. We're students at two, three weeks ago. What do we learn from James chapter four? You need Jesus. Salvation. And identification with Christ is not, it's not a matter undertaken by our own efforts. We don't save ourselves. We don't earn our own merit before God. You cannot simply label yourself a Christian and go on living a worldly life. Nominal Christians are not Christians. Christians in name only are not followers of Jesus. Instead, we're reminded that salvation comes by turning to Christ to be made pure to be made holy by his death and his resurrection in the place of sinners. Salvation is a submission to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ as we remove ourselves from our own attempts to justify ourselves before God. As we come naked and ashamed to God and say, this is me, all of me, in all of my sinfulness. God, you already know it. Clothe me so I'll not be naked. Cover the shame of my sin in the righteousness of your son. To be saved from sin and to enjoy fellowship with God is to realize that our sin has blinded us to the reality of our true state before God and that we desperately need the spiritual healing of Christ to help us to see the depravity of our sin, the depth of our sin, the ugliness and the deadliness of our sin and the righteousness of Jesus. When you recognize your own spiritual poverty, 
When you stand before God in all honesty and you realize you have absolutely nothing to offer a holy God, when you stand before God recognizing the, the shame of your sin and, 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 and even acknowledging the blindness that you have been walking in, and when you stand before God in that state and listen to the call of Christ to turn from sin and to trust him, to receive him, there is the promise of wonderful fellowship to be had with the one who heals the broken and who lifts the humble. Are you wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and you know it? Friends, there's refuge in the arms of Jesus. Come to him, be made holy. Come to him, have the shame of your sin covered. Come to him that you might have eyes to see. The deceptive nature of self-sufficiency is evident in this warning to the Laodiceans, isn't it? Graphically so, even. It makes them, their, their self-sufficiency has made them useless to Christ and to his witness in the world. It makes Jesus sick. As the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century that has nice facilities and liberty to worship as we please, a, a funded ministry budget, it's easy to look at Laodicea and to think, I'm so glad that's not us. Look at how much better we've done. And as soon as that thought crosses our mind, that we've done something special and have no need for Christ's help, then we've already started becoming a lukewarm church. We've already started becoming lukewarm Christians. So let us then, friends, in great humility, look on all that we have as God's provision to us to be used for making much of Jesus. And if the name of Jesus does not resound and does not echo, if it does not, not reverberate out of everything that we do together as a church, let's take efforts to, to repent of that so that it will. Let us be warmed by the hot truth of the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ that we might take this news of deep healing to burdened souls. May our dry hearts be quenched again by the living water of the hope of Jesus so that our words and actions would give life to thirsty souls. Let's open our lives to Jesus, church, so that we may be anything but vomited out of his mouth. Let's pray together. As we do, Wayland Choir, you come and bless us in song again as we close. Gracious Father, again, we give you thanks for hard words that we need to hear. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would soften our hearts to receive them and to respond in faithful obedience to what we have heard. Jesus, you who are the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, we trust that your word has spoken truly to us today. And so now we pray, give us ears to hear that we might respond obediently. Holy Spirit, right now I pray that you would be at work in the hearts of those who may not yet know Christ as Lord and ask that you would impress upon them the wonderful blessing of knowing Christ and having fellowship with him. Lead them to faith and repentance today. Lead them to be bold and courageous to step out even this morning and let someone know of their decision, of their need to follow Jesus. Christ, we want to be obedient to you. We want to be therapeutic and thirst-quenching witnesses to your glory and to the gospel in the world. And so...
with hearts that are determined to repent of sin as often as you show it to us. We pray, Lord, make us so. Make us to be hot. Make us to be cold. Make us to be useful witnesses of you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As the Wayland Choir sings here in just a moment, as uh, they bless us as, uh, as we'll be dismissed in a little bit, as they're singing. Friend, if you have something uh, you need prayer for, counsel about, if you need to trust Jesus for the first time today, I'll be here down here just sitting at the front. Come and let me know. Let's talk this morning about how you can have assurance of your salvation through faith in Jesus. Maybe after service, uh, as, as some are going to small groups, come and find me. Let's talk together about how you can know Christ to be made new in fellowship with him. Uh, let's turn our hearts to worship and responding in obedience as we hear our friends.